um, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from His love, neither death nor life or angels or demons, our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's stop Romans there. In fact, it's tempting, isn't it? Because you get to chapters 9, 10, 11, and it's kind of like, oh, now he's speaking about difficult stuff. And he's speaking about Israel. And then we get to chapters 12 onwards, and it's like, oh, now he's speaking about what we actually have to do. I like the bit about God loving me. Can't we just stop it there? Well, actually... um, We did stop it there a while ago. We're continuing our series through Romans. And we stopped it at chapter 8, that glorious chapter, uh, quite a while ago now. But we're picking it up because what Paul says in the first eight chapters of Romans actually carries through to chapters 9 forwards. Um, And I want to suggest to you that chapter 9 is a difficult passage. It's difficult. I read some of the questions. I was uh, telling Taryn, I read the questions. Paul puts these hypotheticals. One of you will say this. And I go, yes, I want to know that. And then I come to verse 19 and he says, but isn't God just making us do this? How are we responsible? I go, that's a very good question. And then Paul says, shut up, you human. And I go, no, I want the answer. I find it tough. I hope you find it tough. If you, can I just hands up, if you understand God's choosing. Eric, you've been a a Christian for a while. You 100% on that? No, no, I I don't want to know if you've come to terms with it. Are you 100% with it? Do you understand it completely? No. No. Two sides, they can't join in the middle, but they do. Let's pray. I think we need to pray for this one. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you do love us. Thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Father, there are bits of our knowledge of you that we find difficult and that kind of make us want to squirm because we we want you to be like us. We want you to act like we act. We want you to follow our rules. Help us to understand that you are God and we are not. Help us to understand that you are good and fair and just. Help us to understand something of who you are for us and for the world. Um, Lord, we are not arrogant enough to say that we want to be 100% on this topic but we do want to understand and we do want to come to a point where we can trust you and know that what you do is good. Please help us. Holy Spirit, you inspired Paul as he wrote these words. Please illuminate our hearts as we struggle together to understand them. Amen. You've heard the story, I think, of the young man. It's quite a famous story. 
young man who came from a wealthy family um, decided one day he's going to take basically his part of the family wealth and he goes off and he squanders it. Um, he goes away, he ends up spending his money on all of the stuff that we would look down our noses at him for spending it on. Eventually he is penniless, his friends have decided without money he's no fun, and he finds himself working in a literal pigsty, eating what the pigs eat. He is so desperate that he decides he's going to go home, he's going to throw himself in front of his dad, and he's going to say, Dad, I am a scumbag and a half. You just want to... You deserve to whip me, Dad, but I'll be your slave for the rest of my life. You know the story. I, I hope that he comes home, and while he's still in the distance, his dad runs out, gives him this big hug, uh, goes and slaughters the best animal. There's this big party happening. Uh, he's celebrating because his son who was dead is alive again. Jesus told this story um, to the Pharisees. Because there's another son in the story, the goody-goody two-shoes who stayed at home and, and uh, always did what his dad told him to. And he comes in and he, he knows nothing about his brother having returned. And he hears the sound of the partying in the distance. Um, a loud party as well. This, this wasn't a quiet, oh, let's have a cake and blow out the candles because you're home, son. This is, a, this is a party and a half. This dad is prodigal, uh, which means that the dad is just spending big on his son. The older son sends a servant in and says, Hoy, what's up, with, what's up with dad? He doesn't tend to throw parties. Servant goes in, out comes the father, saying, Hey, guess what? Your bro's back. Come in, let's celebrate. And the older son says, You've got to be joking. I'm not going into that two-timing so-and-so. And he stands outside. And the story there is about the Pharisees standing on the outside looking at Jesus spending time with all the wrong sort of people. Now, in Romans, we've got a, a similar situation happening that you've got the Jewish people and you've got a lot of Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. As far as the Jewish people are concerned, the, the Gentiles are well, not much good. There's that old prayer, thank you God for not making me a woman and not making me a Gentile. Um, both are pretty bad, apparently. Sorry if you're female. <laughs> but that's how they felt about the Gentiles. And here God, the Christian message, comes and says Jesus died and has accepted all peoples. And there's this influx of non-Jewish people into the family of God. And there's a celebration at all of this newness of life that's happening. And it's it's tempting for the Jews to stand there and go, Oh, I don't like this. They come late to the party. I really don't like this. But the problem here that, that Paul is addressing in Romans is not so much the problem of the Jews. He's addressing the Gentiles, the non-Jewish younger brothers who are now brought back into God's family, who are excited. There's party, there's celebration. And, and Paul is writing to them in Romans 9 to 11. And he looks at them and he says, Guys, I need to tell you something. Don't be stuck up. You see, what, 
what happened in Rome, a bit of uh, history for you here. Where are my notes? A bit of history for you is that in about 34, no, 48 AD, uh, the Emperor Claudius decided to kick all of the Jews out of Rome. Nero, uh, our friend, came to the throne in 54 and said, Hey, come back. And they all returned. The church in Rome, who wants to hazard a guess how big the church in Rome was at about this time? So 50, 60 years, or 30 years after Jesus. Hazard a guess for me. 100,000 Christians in Rome? No. 500? It's getting closer. Um, we do just guess. Uh, N.T. Wright, the theologian, shocked me as I was listening to him speaking on the book of Romans. He said the church in Rome probably had about 150 people at this stage. Now, we don't have the membership roles or anything like that. So it's a bit of a guess. Could have been 500. It certainly wasn't this massive, massive church. But the problem was that they were living in a society that thought the Jews were rather odd. It was a very anti-Semitic society. And it was very easy for the Christians to stand there as the Jews come back and to look at them and go, hey, hey, God likes us. You got kicked out. We stayed here all the time. We are God's new people. How do you like that? You see that, that sense of arrogance? Paul's writing and, and basically what he's going to say in the chapters 9, 10, and 11 is don't be arrogant, one, and don't be racist towards the Jews. Now, there's a very good reason for that. Uh, in fact, there's, there's a few good reasons. In chapters 3 of Romans, Paul uh, asked a question. He said, what then is the advantage of being a Jew? And it's a good question because if you think about the good news of Jesus, it is that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved. Whether you are Jewish or Gentile or African or Asian or whatever, you trust Jesus, you are saved. And so the question is a good one. Why are why is there or is there any value in being Jewish? No one's Jewish here, are they? Well, Paul was, and, and Paul says, yes, there is great value in being Jewish. In fact, he says in uh, chapter 3, he says, yes, there are great benefits. Everything in every way, some translations. He goes on in, in chapter 9, verses 4 and 6. He gives us some of the advantages of being Jewish. And, and basically, it's got to do with the fact that they have a history with God. They are those adopted as God's chosen people. They are the ones who had seen God's glory. They had seen Him do amazing stuff. They had seen Him descend on the temple and, and they, they had to stop sacrificing because there was just too much of God's presence there for them. They had seen Him clear the way through the Red Sea. They had seen Him break down the walls of Jericho. They had seen Him do all sorts of incredible things. They had seen the fire by night and the, the cloud by day. 
They were those who had received the covenants. The covenants, they, they were a people that had made agreements with God. God said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will do this for you. You will do this for me. They've got this special relationship. They're the ones who had been given the law. They, they had, of all the nations, God said to Israel, this is how I want people to live. This is, this is how humanity is meant to interact with me and with each other. They were given the privilege of worshipping God. They knew God and so they could worship Him in a way that nobody else could. They had been given promises by God. God had said, I will bless you. I'll I'll make your names great. I'll I'll give you this land of of Canaan. I uh, I will use you to bless the world. I promise it. In terms of their ancestry, their DNA, they they came from a long line of those who had trusted God. And even more significantly, and this is a great reason not to be anti-Semitic, humanly speaking, Jesus was a Jew. Now, it's going to be rather embarrassing if you spend your whole life going, oh, the Jews are this and that, and, and you get to heaven and Jesus is like, let's talk about my human ancestry. <laughs> I think that's a great reason for the Romans right there. He says, don't be arrogant. Remember, Jesus himself was a Jew, is a Jew. It's easy, I think, for us Gentiles, non-Jews, to assume that the Jewish people have had their chance. Look, Jesus came to Jews first. They had their chance to accept him. Now the Gospels had to move out and come to everyone else. Give up on them. But have a look at Paul. He, he's not ready to give up on, on the Jewish people accepting Jesus. His job given him by Jesus was to reach out to non-Jewish people, but his heart was burdened for his own people. And I, I can barely grasp that he would say, I would be willing to be cut off from Jesus. So he's just said, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's just spoken about chapter 7, what a miserable man I am who will save me from this, this life of, of sin and death. Thanks be to God through Jesus, but my people are still dying. And if that means that, that I can save them by being cut off from all of that, if I will lose so they will gain, I will do that. Do you hear how much Paul longs for his people to be saved? I wonder how much I long for my friends and family. I don't think I make it to Paul's level. (laughs) What does this have to do with us? We're not Romans. I I don't think Australia is particularly anti-Semitic. Well, there are some, of course, but anybody here hate the Jews? What's the point? Why do we still read this passage, this, this chapter? Well, if we can permit ourselves, let be, let's be selfish for just a minute. Let's be selfish and remember that just as God promised things to the Jews 
and to the Israelite people, God has also promised stuff to us. He's promised, he's even said that we have been adopted. When we trust Jesus, we are given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He has promised us that that he will never let us go in John chapter 6. He's promised us, we've just seen in chapters 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He has promised us that he is coming back to take us to be with him. He has promised that he has saved us. He has promised that we will be raised to new life with him. So why do we read this chapter? Because the question that Paul asks in verse 6 is a really important question. What does he ask? Well, in effect, what he asks is, can God be trusted? Has God failed to keep his promise to Israel? You see what's happened? Here we have a church made up largely of non-Jewish people. And Paul's just gone and said, and Israel's Jewish people have got this great history with God and the promises. And he he said they were going to be his people. He adopted them and all of this. And most of them are not part of God's people. Has God failed? Can God be trusted? Because if God failed them when he promised stuff to them, has he, is he going to keep his word to us? Is he trustworthy? The problem, verse 3, is that many Jews have not believed in Jesus. They have rejected the Messiah. And if we go all the way down to verse 31, uh, we'll read there that, um, where is it? The people of Israel, they tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. They never succeeded, ergo they were never saved. God promised that he would be their God. Most have rejected Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. If you reject Jesus, you lose God. But God promised to be their God. Do you see, do you see Paul's quandary there? Can we trust God to do what he says? Yes or no? Good question though, isn't it? Really good question. I like this chapter because Paul's spot on with the questions that we should be asking. Isn't he being unfaithful to reject Israel because they have rejected Jesus? Well, Paul says, no, there is absolutely no doubt that God is faithful. And his big point is, when you're dealing with a promise, you've got to deal with who the promise is made to. If I go to Colin, 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 I promise that I will take you to an event tomorrow night. Uh, John Lennox, it's going to be great. Yeah? I promise that. Now, you can go to Colin and say to Colin on Tuesday, did Nick keep his, keep his word? Did he take you to a John Lennox event on Monday night? Hopefully he'll say yes, although you'll take yourself. If, however, you go to Jim and go, Jim, did Nicholas, Nicholas stood up in church, you're one of the church members, did he keep his word to take you to the John Lennox event? 
And Jim says, no, he didn't take me to a John Lennox event. And then you look at me and go, oh, such an untrustworthy pastor. <coughs> you see the problem? You've you got you to gotta ask who the promise was actually made to. What promise are we actually talking about here? Um, I, I think all of the promises in the Old Testament, uh, but in particular, I, I think the one that is key is the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, turn, if you've got your Bibles, I'll read it out for you though. Verses 2 to 3 says, uh, I will make you a great nation. This is God to Abraham. I will bless you. I will make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's saying to Abraham, I will do this. And he goes on in verse 7, and, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I will give this land to your descendants. Well, who was the promise given to? Abraham? Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Okay, fantastic. Um, was it to every single one of Abraham's descendants? Paul says no. No, actually, Abraham had two kids. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Um, and God's promise was specifically about Isaac. Um, and you go, oh, okay, fine, Nick. You want to pick that apart. It makes sense. It's got to be Isaac. If you know the story, uh, God said, I'm going to give you the son. You're going to have descendants. Abraham was, was like, I'm getting really old. And, and, and My wife really understands what Mark was talking about earlier because she's falling apart. And she hadn't, hadn't had any kids anyway. And she's not going to start now at her age. And so they, Sarah and Abraham concoct up this plan that, that he'll... Uh, marry the slave of Sarah and have a kid through her. And it's kind of like this, yeah, we'll, we'll help God along kind of thing. And, and we look at that and go, oh, okay, fine. Ishmael, yes, technically is one of Abraham's kids, but it wasn't really what God wanted. And so, yeah, we can understand the promise goes through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Makes sense, yes. Okay, we, we can take that, can't we? That makes sense. Um, and Paul goes, okay, good point. But let, let's go to the next generation. Isaac goes and he marries Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca and Isaac, they don't have any problem conceiving ultimately. In, in fact, they conceive twins. Okay. So who's the promise for? Well, it's Abraham and his descendants. We've already got rid of Ishmael. Uh, so it's Isaac and it's going to be for these two. But no, says Paul, actually what, what happens is that these two are twins, but God promises that Jacob, the younger one, is the one through whom the promise will, will keep going. What? Was it this time because Jacob was the, you know, the more legitimate child? No. In fact, uh, it's spelled out for us. At the time the promise was made, they hadn't done anything good. They hadn't done anything bad. God didn't look and say, well, that one's better, that one's worse. God just said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I've chosen that the promise will go through Jacob. And we're sitting here going, oh, this is really, I don't like God doing that. Paul says God simply chose Jacob and not Esau for his own purposes and reasons. I think Paul is looking here at the history of God's people uh, and he's seeing 
a truth that not everyone born into the nation of Israel are really members of God's people. In fact, that's what he says there. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Your DNA, your ancestry, just because you have genetic similarities to Abraham doesn't mean that you are automatically a recipient of God's promises. Just as being born into a Christian family doesn't guarantee that you will be a Christian. Just as being born into a Christian nation doesn't guarantee that you will be a Christian and that you will see God. Just as coming to church doesn't guarantee that you will know God. Ezekiel says in chapter 18 that um, the sins of the parents... uh, it's, uh, let me read for you. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. The parents will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. In other words, God, God looks at each person. <coughs> DNA doesn't really count. God doesn't look at you and go, Wow, Pam, you're, you're a real shocker, aren't you? But you've got some good DNA in you, so come on through. Not that Pam's a shocker. <laughs> Not that I had to say that. <laughs> oh, I, I happen to know that Pam is a sinner saved by grace. As are the rest of us. What about Paul's question here? Has God failed to keep his promise? Well, no, but not everyone we assume to be God's chosen people are God's chosen people. And just a quick aside, um, modern Israel today, the land of Israel, are they God's people? Uh, according to the flesh, yes. According to DNA, absolutely. Are they the children of the promise? Some are. All who accept Jesus are. We have brothers and sisters who have this amazing privilege of having this long history with God, who share genetics with Jesus. A remnant of Israel has always been and is still being saved. But Paul would be very strong and say, just because somebody's Jewish doesn't mean that they are God's people. Well, isn't God unfair? Let, let's quickly go through here. Predestination, election, God choosing. <sighs> Difficult. Isn't it unfair of God to choose some and not to choose others? Why not choose Ishmael and Isaac? Why not choose Jacob and Esau? Why not choose all of genetic descendants of of Abraham? Why not choose all of us? God's choosing, God's election is something that you and I have to grapple with. And like it or not, I think it's something that if we're going to go with the Bible, we have to come down and go, yes, God does actually choose people. Now, I'll put my hand up here and go, I have no idea how he does it. I've got no idea what 
makes God decide who and when and where and why, I, I don't know. I'll put my hand up right here and go, this makes me uncomfortable. But mostly because I think, as we'll see, we think of God as a big version of me. And God is God and, and we are not. God's not being unfair. When he chooses some, he chooses to show mercy and compassion to them. Everyone deserves to be punished for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nothing we can do, says Paul in this chapter, can force God to choose us. No amount of hard work will make God standing in the corner with his clipboard going, yep, 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 okay, done, you get the tick, you're through. That's not how God does it. God chooses according to his own purpose, according to his own will. I mean, think about Pharaoh and Israel. This is the story of the Exodus. They're, they're slaves there. God wants Pharaoh to let them go. And, and Paul says to, to us, yeah, okay, we've, we've got the story. Pharaoh and Israel are both scumbags. They both rebel against God. Israel all the time. We saw that just last week in Numbers 20. But God chooses to show mercy to Israel. And he chooses to harden Pharaoh's heart and use him to spread his power and his fame and the knowledge of him throughout the world. Isn't that unfair? It is for Pharaoh, says Robin. How do I know that I'm not a Pharaoh? I think when we, when we come to this whole topic of God choosing it sounds like God makes us either recipients of mercy or recipients of judgment. It comes down to God's choice of, of who belongs to Him, who doesn't belong to Him. And if so, how can God hold people accountable? Aren't we just doing what God makes us do? Does that, does that resonate with you? No? No? Few people afraid to nod. <laughs> Paul doesn't actually answer that accusation <laughs> directly. Because his point is that it is based, the whole argument is based on a bad idea of who we are and who God is. Um, he's got this analogy of, of clay in verse um, 14 forwards. Where is it? Verse 20 there. When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage in? I'm not clay. I get to make my own choices. The analogy there is drawn from Isaiah and from Jeremiah and it's, it's speaking in context about a time when God was dealing with the rebellious Israel. And it's like a potter. Has anyone done pottery? Do you ever get a piece of pottery that just won't work and you're struggling to get it into the right shape and your beautiful vase turns into a cigarette tray? I've made many cigarette trays. In my childhood. And I'm not, well, that's because if it looks vaguely bowl shaped, you can say it's a cigarette tray. 
The fact is that God is the creator. He's, he's not just the biggest bunch of clay. He's the potter. He has the right to do what he wants. He is the artist and whatever he does shows off his glory. Um, his mercy shines incredibly brightly on all those he has chosen. And, and even when he destroys, we see something of his patience and kindness. Um, when the clay refuses to be formed into the shape that he wants it to be, he keeps working on it. He's patient. And, and only after much molding and attempting does he consign it for destruction. So, but again, am I just a piece of clay doing what God makes me do? Don't I get a choice in this? I think Paul has learned to live with the paradox that Graham was speaking about. God is completely sovereign. God chooses whom he chooses. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. The Bible is clear and absolute. God chooses. The Bible is also pretty clear that humans are responsible and we have to choose for God as well. God is absolutely the one who chooses. But we are absolutely responsible. Thanks, Paul. Clear as mud. <laughs> Think about it. God hardened hearts. Pharaoh is the example given. But, but if you read the story of Pharaoh in Exodus, go and read it and you, you'll see that there's at least ten times where God gives Pharaoh the chance to do the right thing. And you'll also see, if you read through the story of Exodus, that it kind of alternates between, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So God's doing it, and Pharaoh's doing it. And, and even in the story there, we see this duality of God's absolute sovereignty, and yes, also we are responsible. After all of Paul's emphasis on God's choosing and looking at Israel and saying, okay, not all of them were really heirs of Abraham, you expect or I expect Paul to go, well, God's obviously chosen the ones he wants. He's going to do the right thing by them. Whoever God's chosen will come to him. So let's just not bother with the rest because if they haven't accepted Jesus, then obviously God hasn't chosen them. And so let's just deal with the ones that God has chosen. Doesn't that make sense? Don't pray for the Israelites because they've obviously rejected him. Don't pray for those who don't come to Jesus because obviously God is going to choose them. And if God chooses them, then they're going to come to him. And so why bother speaking? What? You know what I find really interesting? Paul believes that God chose people before the beginning of the world. He does. But that doesn't stop Paul longing and praying for Israel to be saved. If God has chosen, why bother praying for those who might not be chosen? Why pray, as Paul does in, in chapter 10, verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. And I look at that and I, I go, I really am confused about how God chooses because obviously God has chosen, but it seems like God is still free to choose. And can my prayers make a difference? 
well, why would Paul pray if his prayers wouldn't make a difference? I think, let's bring it back to us. Anyone who trusted Jesus, anyone who trusts him, needs to know that it is because God has chosen you. We can't stand in the doorways going, God chose me and didn't choose you. Nah, 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 nah. We shouldn't be arrogant. Look down our noses on those who, who don't become Christians. For Paul, for the Romans, saying don't look down your noses on the Jewish people in particular. Instead, we should be praying earnestly for those who know of God and who have some history with God. Um, you know, the Jews had some history with God. We live in a post-Christian society where a lot of people have, have some knowledge of God and some history of God, but they don't know Him. Does that mean we stand and go, ha, we know Him. He chose us. No, it means we look and we go, God, save them. They've heard about you, but they don't know you. Anyone who trusts Jesus needs to know it is because God has chosen us. It's not because of any goodness within ourselves. It is not because we are better than others. It's because God chose us. And anyone who does not yet trust Jesus needs to know one other thing. In fact, I'd almost say we preach election to those who are chosen And we preach verse 33 to those who are not. What does it say? Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. We know that we are saved by grace. We offer that grace to the world and we pray that God would open hearts and minds. Was it such a difficult passage? Good. It was. I hope it's, it's at least stirred the mud around a bit for you. Um, still mud. Talk about it over morning tea. Um, if you've got questions, you can always put it into the newsletter. Uh, I'm sorry we have gone a little bit over time, but it's a difficult passage. Um, Mark, yes. would you like to lead us in a song? It, something about Amazing Grace, maybe.
can't even read it. Where's Cyclops? I prefer Nelson, thank you very much. He's only trying to do three things at once. How <laughs> sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear! The hour I first believed, my chains are. Gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns on ending love. Amazing. promised good to me his word my hope secures he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures my chains are gone I've been set free, my God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace, my chains are gone. I've been set free, my God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing You are
Matthew?